Hello, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the Clean and Green podcast. My name is Ivan, and I'll be your host. Before getting into the episode, I want to talk a little bit about why I'm starting this podcast, some of the goals I have for this podcast, and the value I hope to bring to each and every listener. In the fall of my sophomore year, if I were asked what I wanted to do in my life, I would have told you I wanted to work for U.S. intelligence. I had this tunnel vision where I came to college to get a job, and I wanted to achieve that the easiest way possible. And thus, I wanted to use my heritage Russian language skills to get myself the job. Little did I know, this was the complete opposite direction of what I wanted to do in my life. I remember struggling my sophomore year as my courses were focused on intelligence and political affairs, and I just hated those classes. I wasn't gravitated towards the material at all, and I had this sinking feeling where I hyped up this career without looking at the bigger picture. My junior year, I had the opportunity to study abroad. As cliche as it sounds, it actually partially changed my life. Prior to landing in Copenhagen, my family traveled to Ukraine for an adoption. I had the opportunity to visit Chernobyl with my twin brother and to visit the site that my extended family had once inhabited. At the time, I didn't really think much about it. I was just amazed by the scenery, the levels of radioactivity through the town, yet also saddened that my extended family had once lived there. As the week came to a close, I left to begin studying abroad in Copenhagen. After I got situated in my new home, I decided to walk around my little community and explore. What I immediately noticed were the large offshore wind turbines in the distance. I had never seen wind turbines so up close, and I wanted to figure out what exactly they do. As I started learning more about offshore wind and renewable energy, it hit me that in a span of a few days, I traveled from a city that was completely destroyed by a nuclear explosion to a city that will reach its goals of being carbon neutral in 2025. After having this realization, that's when I first started thinking about a career in renewables, and it's a realization that I haven't looked back on, and it has given me both career and personal goals that I hope this podcast will help me achieve. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about my goals for this podcast. My generation and the ones to come will have to experience the dark side of climate change. It is important for everyone to understand that to avoid a climate crisis, everyone needs to be part of the solution. This can be either by reducing your own carbon footprint, biking instead of driving, carpooling, but there's also other things you can do, such as voting. I'm gonna say voting one more time because an informed citizenry is the most important thing needed to address this crisis on our hands. Like I said, climate change is a collective action problem. And this podcast will bring to light some of the issues that desperately need an informed citizenry behind them. Episodes will cover a variety of topics, such as renewable sources, climate change, energy policy, sustainable practices, and many more topics. There will be some episodes where it's just me, and then there will be episodes where I speak with industry professionals and hear about their careers and their points of view. I think this podcast will be able to bring tons of value to the audience regardless of what you want to do in your life or not. And I hope that those who listen will give me their feedback and bring forth other topics that they would like me to discuss and talk about. And now, without further ado, the first episode is titled The Rise of Renewables. In this episode, I'll talk a little about the industry, its growth, the impact COVID-19 has had on the industry, and what the industry will look like moving forward. 
In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Daniel Fleischman, who currently works in asset management for Clearway Energy Group. Daniel has 16 years of industry experience and holds a Bachelor of Arts from Dickinson College and a Master's in Public Policy from George Washington University. In this episode, Daniel is only speaking as someone of industry experience and not on behalf of Clearway Energy Group. Hey Daniel, how are you doing today? Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how I want to structure my podcast, and I think one theme that I'd like to have throughout it is opening up with the question, why renewable energy? So have there been any distinct moments that made you want to pursue a career in renewables, and what has been the driving factor behind your success in the industry so far? something or you're part of something bigger than yourself and not everybody's blessed to have that opportunity in life to feel like you're part of this innovation this next step i mean if you go back uh even into the nixon administration when they talked about the future this is during the opec oil crisis uh, even in the Nixon administration, they said one day solar is really going to be a dominant force in the world. Uh, you know, I think wind was in that, that vein as well. But there's always been this belief that innovation lies with renewable energy. Uh, from administration to administration, from government to government to, to country to country, there's been that belief. And so for me, the opportunity was just in grad school, an internship came up i walk in american public power association and i had this opportunity and they said we're going to do you're going to learn about wind i said great it just it was just love it love it first you know site it was that was what i wanted to do and i researched it and researched it i think that the key to the success is you've got to be interested in what you're doing If you're really fascinated by what you're doing, you're going to learn more and learn more. And you're naturally just going to fit because the hard work that you put in is going to be out of your own intellectual curiosity and not just, well, I'm going to work and they're giving me a paycheck. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just because I'm so interested in it and I just, it fascinates me so much. I think that's been the key to success. You got to be passionate. So, I, so my my advice to any professional is, if you go into a lot of work and you think, well, this is a good job for the future, and this is what I want to do, but you're not excited by it, I don't care how smart you are. You're not going to be very good at it. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And I know one thing we talked about earlier was doing something you love, and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And for me, I always saw college as a way to get a good job. You know, for the first few years, I was in like this tunnel vision mindset where I said, what skills do I have now that'll get me a job, that'll get me a paycheck so I can, I guess, keep making money and going through life. And for me, the more I started pursuing working in U.S. intelligence and using my Russian language skills, the stuff I was working with, I wasn't gravitated towards at all. And I just couldn't imagine myself sitting down eight hours a day and doing something that I didn't enjoy. You know, for me, my mindset again, was so focused on getting that job that I didn't worry about long-term goals or finding a job that contributes to a better society for people. 
And as I've been connecting with you and other industry professionals, I've not only found an interest, but I've started to think about how I can use my platform and my value to not simply just chase profits, but to build a continued and growing commitment to environmental responsibility, you know, to inform others, to do something that will change the future. You know, I can't wait to just use this podcast, see where it takes me, so I can document my career journey in the industry and continue learning from people like you and sharing that knowledge. So I'm super excited to get this episode going. Up until the 20th century, coal, oil, gas were super dominant players in the global energy system. And these fossil fuels were the catalyst for the Industrial Revolution and all the economic and technological developments. The reliance on fossil fuels arguably improved the lives of people, creating economies, allowing global trade, and many other factors. But the negative impacts of emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases are immense and continue to become more and more severe and apparent. The need to decarbonize and transition away from fossil fuels to low carbon energy sources really started to take off during the 21st century, thanks to new technology, affordable alternatives, green policy, and that's roughly the time that you broke into the industry, early 2000s. So back then, the sources of energy generation by each state were not headlined by sustainable sources. And now if we just look at this 20 year leap, in 2019, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, almost 17.5% of total utility-scale electricity generation is from renewables. So I just want to hear a little bit about how the industry has grown during your career and what you think that growth has been attributed to. Well, uh, so, so far in 2020, renewables is beating coal. Mm-hmm. We're ahead of coal. And so renewables has really grown, and that includes hydro, of course, hydro, wind, solar, geothermal, and biomass are now ahead of coal. It's a dramatic shift. So here's how I would ex- describe it. The whole system of energy was built for fossil fuels. Uh, it was built for big central station power plants. And I would compare it, though, to the way that we built our infrastructure for cars and trucks. We built a system of roads for cars and trucks, but that really just allowed room for cars and trucks. Mm-hmm. We built a grid system, an electric grid system that was built not just for the central station power plants, it was built in the 1930s during the, the Great Depression through the New Deal to build uh, a rural electrification. So there was all these lines going all these little communities but the thing is, the difference is, I can't put a train on a highway. Yeah. I can't put a train or you know a streetcar on a highway. I can put I can put wind on those power lines though. I could put solar on there, and that was the advantage that you built the infrastructure for fossil fuels, but you also built it for us too, so that we could fit in it. So when our day came that we could compete, we were ready. But you have to understand, and I don't know the full history. I don't Mm -hmm. have it. But the open access transmission tariff, the rule changes that we're saying that you have to, if, if, if a generator wants to connect to the grid, the utility can't say, no, we were going to build the coal plant or the gas plant. So you can't go on the grid. No, they made the grid more public. 
Meaning, and I like I said, I don't want to go into all the specifics or risk anything something wrong. Yeah. But with this open access, the key to it was that we could all compete. And once you allowed wind and solar on the grid, all we had to do was get the cost down. Mm-hmm. And what's happened is that through there's been government support, but it's not just been in the U.S. It's been global. So it's not just about U.S. deciding we like renewables. It's China deciding they like it. It's India deciding they like it. It's Germany deciding they like it. So all of these different countries supporting this technology gradually got the cost down. And when, once they got down, we could compete. Now, people say, how do renewables compete with fossil fuels? Well, a coal plant needs a rail car to get the coal to the plant. You also need miners to mine the coal. Natural gas had to be drilled, and uh, then you had to build a pipeline to get the gas to the plant. Oil, of course, has its own challenges, but you had to drill it, you had to transport it. With wind and solar, the key advantage was you never had to transport it. You just had to transport the machines, install them, and then they would do the rest. So that natural advantage that renewables had was going to catch up eventually. We just had to put the investment in. And I'm not talking about U.S. investment. I'm talking about global. Global. Mm -hmm. And the global investment, that's what got us there. It was a matter of time before fossil fuels and the inefficiencies there and the environmental uh, concerns all and the political concern, the political concern, not on the U.S. scale, but uh, in internationally with uh, reliance on Russian gas, certainly drove European nations to want to get more renewables because mm-hmm. they didn't have the natural resources themselves. Yeah. So there was all these different factors that were uh, kind of, you know, the wind was at our back, pushing us in the right direction to get us to where we are today. And then once the technology really got going, uh, the cost fell. It was just exponential growth. Yeah, and one of the things that when I first started researching into renewables, people would say like, oh, well, where does the sun not shine and where does the wind not blow? And in my head, I was like, wow, that just seems like a much better alternative because with fossil fuels, only certain places have the advantage where they get to control the production, the distribution. So with renewables, it seems like assuming there's a large investment, every country has an opportunity to get a piece of the pie. That's correct. However, uh, I would disagree with you on, on one thing, that with solar and wind, mm-hmm. there are certain locations where solar is more of a challenge because of the yeah. weather, because of the topography. And wind, well, wind is ubiquitous. There are certain places where the wind certainly doesn't blow as hard and certain places where it does. So it's fortunate we have a lot more places for wind and solar than we do for something like geothermal, which is more akin, which is even more rare than oil or gas. So, uh, but true, we do have the ability as we build better and better machines to have more efficiency Yeah, as machines become, continue to become better, they'll become more efficient as well. But, you know, on top of that, I think one of the largest growing variables in renewables has been battery storage, which has recently seen tremendous innovation. So how do you see battery storage helping renewables continue to take that huge leap over coal? 
So the way that energy works is it's based on demand. So mm-hmm. at a certain points of the day, there's not as much demand. And um, the way that we manage that now, particularly, is that natural gas is a peaker. Think about the gas burner on your stove. You turn it up or turn it down. Mm-hmm. So you can push that gas uh, harder to meet that demand uh, when it's needed. So how do you replicate that with renewables? Well, you need to have some way to spread out the renewable energy so that when you don't need it, you can store it. And that can almost compete with natural gas mm-hmm. as a peaking source. That's what storage is doing. And in California, it had been the ultimate test case. So I'll give you a very quick scenario. In California, in 2012 and then 2014 or 15, I think it was a few years later. So you had this crisis, 2012, San Onofre, nuclear plant goes down. Mm-hmm. This is north of San Diego. So now you lose this massive two gigawatts of power. And what do you need to do? Well, you're going to need to ramp up the natural gas. You're going to need to build generation. There's more complexity technologically, but you need to replace that. There's a big corridor of energy load in San Diego, Los Angeles. You need the power. So now you have natural gas uh, that has to fill that burden. Well, what happened to the natural gas? Well, a storage facility, I think it was the Liso Canyon, a few years later, it leaked. So now you have your gas storage, the storage that, that feeds the gas plants in L.A. and Los Angeles in that area, is now you can't use it because you have this methane leak they had to evacuate people. So now, what are you going to do to meet peak demand? Prices are going to skyrocket. So they said storage is the answer, and they invested heavily. And even with the Liso Canyon, I think maybe it stabilized a bit. You still have that fear that you need to meet demand. And we have these, this, this new boom in renewables. If we can harness it and store it, and there's so much economic advantage to that. Mm-hmm. We just gotta figure out how. And, and I think that as the industry uh, matures, it's gonna become instrumental. And it doesn't mean natural gas doesn't have a role to play, but storage is gonna maximize the value of renewables and it doesn't have to the last thing to say about that it doesn't have to be on site mm-hmm. your storage doesn't necessarily have to be next to the plant it can be and it can be very useful but sometimes in, in a place like San Onofre or a place where like Lake Oliso Canyon where you had a gap where you need a store where you need a battery to be you could put that on in a place strategically on the electric grid near renewables where all of that power is flowing and can store before it gets to the load, uh, before it gets to Los Angeles or San Diego. So, because the power can travel for miles. It's just that when it gets to load, you need to make sure you have the load. And if you can put it in a giant battery and then release it when all that demand comes back, that's the key to success. And I think... We're seeing success in, in a lot of states, and we're seeing it replicated. So it's it, it's really it's really exciting to see that progress. And uh, I mean, there's always going to be challenges with it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into all that detail, you know. But supply of raw materials, things like that. You know, uh, you can have fires like you had in in, in Arizona. 
but the more that we do this, the better we get at it. Yeah. So I, I think it's instrumental. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just thinking about all the tech improvements we've seen in this decade and the one prior, it'll be really interesting to see how these tech advancements will improve battery storage. Now, you did just talk briefly about supply of materials and demand, and um, there's been this one event this year, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's obviously hindered global supply chains for all industries. So so how would you describe COVID's impact on uh, not only renewable energy generation, but also the other problems facing the industry right now in light of recent events? Yeah. <laughs> 
Some jobs are going to be lost. Many jobs are going to be lost. There's going to be impacts like everybody mm-hmm. else. But fortunately, we've seen the industry. It's been so strong. Yeah. That even with something like this, we've been able to weather that storm, and we can just hope that if things if we, we we do everything we can for things to improve, uh, that you know we can get past this, and we'll be even and we'll remain a very strong industry going forward. Yeah, that's a great thing to hear, especially with you know so many industries being impacted by COVID. It kind of seems like a lot of these industries have their feet dug into the ground. But, you know, having a strong industry in renewables where you have safety measures from companies as well as government support, that's a really good thing to hear. And hopefully the industry will be able to gain some momentum off of this and keep growing. And this actually feeds perfectly into my next question. So obviously in 2019, just looking at statistics, renewable energy generation has grown in every single state. But some states have been getting a lot more energy generation, renewable energy generation, than other states, for example, California. California's planning on having, I think it was 50% of California's electricity be powered by renewable sources in 2025, 60% in 2030, and then with an end goal of 100% of electricity being powered by renewable sources. Now, obviously, these are very ambitious goals, and I hope that the industry is gonna be able to recover in a quick enough time to make those goals attainable. But you know, looking at goals set by different states why do you think goal setting is so uneven across the United States? Do you think some of these states are just waiting for solar and wind to become much more cost effective? Or is it simply that there's just not enough of an investment at this point? So there's three factors for why, for an effect, mm-hmm. your success of renewables in the state. Uh, one is resource. Do you have... And I'm speaking, you know, geothermal is a much more smaller industry, but certainly the resource is important there. But let's talk about solar and wind. Sure. Having a good solar resource, having a lot of uh, flat, arable, private land, generally private land. I mean, you can do federal land. Um, that can be a little more complex to develop. But generally having a lot of flat, arable land. Or land, I'm sorry, not arable. Flat land that you can use and put solar on. Mm-hmm. or having places where the wind blows consistently. Resource makes it a lot more attractive to build these technologies because the cost is going to be lower because you're having more production at the same capital cost. So if I build a, a wind farm in a place where the wind's not really blowing and I build it in a place where it is, I'm just going to make more money mm-hmm. simply because even if the price is a little higher, uh, in the place where it's not blowing, the resource is critical. Second, what's the price of power in that state? So if the price of power in a state is very low, and they don't necessarily need more generation, there's less incentive to build renewables because the price just isn't, the price point's not there. If your price per kilowatt hours, you know, a wholesale market, uh, is three or four cents or two or three cents or even cheaper. You know, if I add with the renewable, it's just gonna be tougher to compete. But in places like California and New York State and Massachusetts and New Jersey, prices were higher. And therefore it was more attractive. Uh, 
So those two things come into play. And then the third is policy. Do the state lawmakers really want to invest? And what we found, what I've seen, in my experience, it's not, it's, it's, it's very, very individualistic where the states, whether it be a Republican or a Democrat, maybe an individual politician or policymaker see an opportunity in their state. Iowa is a perfect example. Where in Iowa, they just decided to do it. It's very windy there. And I think it was a bipartisan decision. It just seemed that they were willing to just do it. Let's build wind farms. Let's do community wind. Let's support this technology. And it's just off. And by being early adopters, this was an early adopter. Um, it was actually the, the, the second Bush administration. I'm sorry, the, the Bush administration in Texas that had had the renewable uh, standard uh, setting a goal for a certain amount of renewables in Texas. So you do see it, it was kind of a bipartisan issue to support it, but I think a lot of those other factors came in. So maybe that fourth thing was really opportunity. A government saying, you know what? We have an opportunity here. We can create a lot of jobs in our state. A lot of that, like I said, is driven by resource. Texas, Mm -hmm. Iowa were certainly driven by the fact that they saw this opportunity. And they said, ooh, we can create a lot of jobs. Let's do this. And... So I think it's really, but it's really those factors that go in resource, policy, and price. But sometimes the policy is not driven by uh, environmental reasons; it's driven by business reasons, and it's kind of this win-win mm-hmm. where everybody kind of benefits. And, and that's what I, it was so gratifying about getting into the industry in the first place to see it was something where it seemed like everybody was supportive. It was just this no-brainer that when you have support from everybody, everybody wants to is invested in your success. It makes it a lot easier to to accomplish your goals. Yeah, and that's a great thing to hear about the industry. You know, looking at the future of renewable energy, you talked about opportunity and the amount of jobs that can be created. Right now in the United States, the unemployment rate is horrendous. You know, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while. It's going up a little bit, but it's still an extraordinary high percentage. So how do you see the continued growth of the industry helping our economy? Throughout my research, one thing that I read and saw a lot about was the idea of a green economy and a green new deal. So I wanna hear your take on how the industry can help the overall economy as a whole. It's a component Anytime that you have a thriving industry, that that helps. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I, I've said this before. I don't think it's controversial to say you you renewable energy cannot save the economy on its own. Oh. It is one component, and I think it's a very helpful component. But we have to understand that this is one industry. There's many industries in this country that have to be successful, and we all have to work in tandem as a team, as a country, uh, to be successful. So it is one, you know, I, I do feel that renewables can help. It's not the, it's not the only thing, though. Mm-hmm. Remember that, because one of the things you have to understand is that we, when we build these plants, it doesn't mean that you're going to create 
hundreds of jobs to operate a plant. Now, you're going to create a lot of jobs indirectly to service and operate and maintain. And all, all of the general services that are required to, make, you know, to, to maintain these machines. But just remember that, you know, you can't always tie everything. There, there's, there's not going to be, you're only going to need to employ as many people that are needed to operate it. However, uh, having a strong industry like this that's growing, that's not stagnant, is really critical. And it also, because you have so much innovation in this industry, mm -hmm. that it forces people to learn on the job so that when you see technology uh, improve and, and operations and maintenance costs going down, because we're just getting better at it. We're just getting better at, at, at maintaining these machines and finding solutions for, I'm not going to too many specifics, but you know, when a certain part goes down, you have, you have large parts in a turbine that little components, when they start to break down, if you fix them early, you don't have to fix the big part of the machine, like a gearbox. Mm. A gearbox can cost you, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. But if I can fix something within the gearbox that costs me thousands of dollars instead of hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, and I can improve monitoring equipment within the facility uh, to make sure when do things break down, all of these improvements drive down costs. And this is what we strive for. And by doing that and all that innovation, it just it just makes it more attractive, makes it more helpful, brings our energy costs down. So there's just a lot that we can add. Um, but, you know, we're not the only part of this economy. So uh, that that's where I caution. But I am I do feel that we're a part of the solution. Gotcha. Now, you know, the last thing I want to touch on is the future of renewables. Um, now more than ever, I think people are realizing the impacts of climate change and calling for action. I think a big portion of this realization is by young people around my age and even younger. I remember last fall I was studying abroad and I was on a trip. I forget where, but there was a it was the day of the global climate walkout in September. And I remember just walking through the streets and seeing so many young people walking out of class to protest against global leaders who just refuse to acknowledge climate change and its impact on the future. You know, every day there's more and more CO2 and greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere. And many say that eventually, you know, this is a science experiment that is bound to go wrong. To me, I see the future of renewables as an innovation to help ensure and protect the lives of all human beings and our ecosystem. You know, right now, as you said, renewables are beating coal, but I see the future holding an exponential leap for renewables. Preventing a climate catastrophe, you know, it's a collective action problem. And like you said, uh, transitioning to clean energy is a global movement. But, you know, you see some countries that are exponentially ahead in the goals of carbon neutrality. Like, for example, uh, Denmark, when I, where I got a study abroad, they're expecting to be, at least the capital city, Copenhagen, is expected to be 100% uh, renewable energy electricity generation by 2025. You know, although Copenhagen's about to reach their goal, there's countries such as Costa Rica, Sweden, 
Norway, Iceland, who already produce all their electricity from renewable energy. Do you think it'll be possible for these bigger countries to set these sort of ambitious goals for the future? And do you think these large consumer countries will ever be able to reach their goal of carbon neutrality? Well, I think you have to look back at the history of energy production. And you think about a coal plant in the 1950s that didn't have a very high heat rate, meaning the more coal you you had to burn a heck of a lot of coal mm-hmm. to get a, the electricity you needed. And as we've improved technology and gotten more efficient, we've gotten coal plants more efficient, but then you've made gas plants more efficient, and you make electricity more efficient. That means less input, right? So you need to put less input into the plant, and it's so efficient that it creates sufficient output. And we're trying to make everything cleaner. Yeah. And it's going to take, and it, it takes time to do that, uh, to be able to reach something like 100% renewable energy. Um, everything has environmental impact, even renewables, when you, when you, you got to mine them out of the ground. So there, there, there's, it is a huge challenge. So when you do that, you have to figure out what technologies can we utilize that have the less amount of the least amount of inputs, whether it be mining of materials, or if you're going to have fossil fuels, you're not going to have to produce as you're not going to have to use as much fossil fuel as to get the production out of it. All of that really comes down to efficiency. The efficiency of our energy is critical to reaching those next level goals. Uh, and when it comes to climate, you, there is, it's a heavy lift because this is not like the ozone layer. This is a much bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't solve it. Renewables is one piece of that puzzle. But there are many parts to that puzzle that we're going to need to solve. Uh, with not just, remember, it's not just renewables it's also vehicles mm-hmm. uh, because certainly vehicles you know are going to contribute to greenhouse gas emissions it's going to be agriculture it's going to be so there's so many different factors it's going to be deforestation uh, the amazon and what we're seeing there so renewables once again has a role to play but it's not the only player mm-hmm. Uh, you can shut down. Now, we, we've done in this country by going from, you know, I think it was about 2006, 2007, so you're almost 50% of your power is coal. And you still have a lot of old coal plants. Plants that were built in the 50s, they may have had upgrades, but you're still, you know, not that efficient. And now we're probably around 20% looking at 20% or maybe less in 2020 of our power generation is going to come from coal. So that in just about 12 or 13 years to go from half of your power supply in the largest economy on earth, uh, to go from half of that being powered by coal to a, to 20%. That's a huge leap in just a short time. Mm-hmm. So imagine with all the investment we've done, and all the progress we've done, if we can make that kind of leap, and it's one of the things when people say to me, we're just not doing anything about climate. 
look how much progress we've made in about just over a decade. Mm-hmm. Think of how much further we can go. I think looking at it in a more positive way, it's looking how, how, how far we've come in 10 years. We still have a long way to go. But if you look at how far we've come, the future is pretty bright that we can go further. Mm-hmm. Now, will we be able to avert a crisis? I don't know. But we're going to do everything we can in our industries to meet the goals that are set. But the goals have to be set. And there has to be global cooperation. And we can even even go farther. So... Uh, when it comes to 100%, there's still, I believe, a lot of challenges to reaching that. But we're getting, we're, we're, we, you have to think about how far we've come. Mm-hmm. And celebrate that success a little bit. And remember to be grateful for it and to say, and to present it to the public in such a way to say, instead of saying, listen, we have this problem, and it's going to get worse when we need to act. It's saying, we have this problem. We are acting. We can do better. But look how well we've done. Going, look how much progress we've made. Now we've got to keep adding to it. Have a positive outlook to it, and I think that that brings out a lot of the optimism that is missing from our public discourse. And that's the way that I would. I think that it needs to be talked about more. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. You know, having a positive outlook could change a lot in public discourse. And you have to celebrate successes we've had along the way, but we should know that there's a lot more that can be done and we're not even close to the complete solution. But I'm super glad that we have professionals like you and people at Clearway and all these other companies working to ensure a better future for all of us. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I learned a lot. I know the listeners learned a lot as well. And yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity and I, I wish you the best of success. All right. Thanks so much, Daniel. Bye-bye.